You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Rohini Rana, who's uh, uh, who's the author of the Nepal cookbook 108 Regional Recipes. Hi Rohini. Hi, hi Manjula, how are you? Fine, fine. Now Rohini, before we start, you know, you uh, talk about I mean you mentioned it in the book at length, but say why 108 regional recipes, you know? Okay. Now 108 there's a uh... you know uh, coming from nepal which till a couple of years back used to be the only hindu kingdom in the world so yes. we are quite steeped in religion and culture and you know these all the cultural ethnic practices so and it is a very ritualistic country as well so 108 has a lot of uh, connotations and vedic meanings to it you know astrologically vedically the number 108 mm-hmm. is supposed to be an auspicious number yes for no other reason but just to be auspicious and hopefully uh, you know having an auspicious number in the book will carry it on and make it lucky and auspicious as well and you know to reach it out to the public out there and uh, hopefully mm. they will appreciate it as well so you know uh, basically the 108 karmic points you know whether it's yoga or it's veda or it's astronomy or whatever 108 you know whatever distance from the earth to the sun all that all the connotations there i just think it's a lucky number and i thought if i used it it might help with the book mm. fantastic it's certainly i think it's helped because the recipes in the book are quite quite lovely and some of them are you know easy to make but i don't know like especially the f- many things that um, you know are done with potatoes i was struck by that you know how come we never you know i keep when i was reading and i say how come i never thought of doing this to the potato you know dunking it making right 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 <laughs> it was just like you just make a thick soup but not like this you know it's very like i thought it was very innovative also for a uh, you know i mean potatoes are not a native uh, uh, plant right i mean they came in with uh, with i don't know with with the portuguese i think so yes and yes, then yes. spread in the subcontinent so right. i don't know those so many things you know when when a people show their creativity with something like this you know it, i don't know it struck me as really fantastic So do you want to talk about that to begin with and then we'll go on to the other many many recipes which are great. Sure sure see uh, potatoes are a total like after the rice and the wheat and uh, you know the millet and stuff like that they are like a staple in Nepal I don't know one mm. meal mm. that is made without potatoes in it you know mm. from the time I got married I'm originally from India from the time I got married in Nepal and into mm. the Ram family each meal whether it was lunch tea or dinner had potatoes wow and it was really funny is really funny anecdote uh, that where my husband was suddenly you know accredited to a school and he was you know teaching civics suddenly he was a gymnast supposed to be sports and he made the boys write an essay on something about civics but the mm-hmm. boy wrote potato is the king of curry so, you know so it just shows 
Og den er bare lige mig en ting, så på det du. You know, literally, I said, I, so I told him, I said, and he passed him, you know, and I said, how can you, there's nothing, no connection with the gymnastics. He said, he's a very good gymnastic Mr. Pass, you know. So, so that's the way it goes. So potatoes, you know, be it in the Rana families, it's this special speciality called alu tariko, right? Each Rana house makes it in a subtly different way. And it's as tasty, you know. And then the typical Nepali alu kachar, which is famous, you know. People think it's pickled, you know. Alu. No, it's fresh, it's eaten fresh, it's not kept for days. But it's called achar, you know. And we use a lot of sesame seeds and mustard oil. And of course, the shishwa pepper, which is timur, you know, which is called timur, which is shishwa yes, pepper. Yes. Our food so but yes. potatoes are just a staple i mean they have to be street food is potatoes home food is potatoes potato is there to stay in nepal <laughs> you know when you talk about how when you first got married and uh, and you went to nepal and then you know your mother uh kind of before you left you you were put through this whole cookery thing and you know so talk about that yes every day <laughs> Okay, so uh, from uh, childhood, I was in a boarding school, right? I went to, in Nanital, I went to St. Mary's Convent, which was a boarding school. Then I went on to college, which was since uh, was Sophia College in Ajmer. My mom, like I said in the book, she adored nuns. She thought, you know, they instilled that discipline and moral science and ethics into you, which was really stood me anyway in very good stead. So uh, when I... In the last, uh, in fact, the last month of college, just before my exams, two days before my psychology paper, I remember, I was doing honors in English literature and psychology was my subsidiary. So I come from a traditional Rajput family where, you know, arranged marriages were the norm of the day. So we didn't think anything else unless someone had fallen in love. I guess there might have been a problem. But anyway, we just went along with it and said... And, uh, you know, so these people came to see me and uh, I... I was engaged and I got married, you know. So all this happened uh, very suddenly. And then we go to Nepal, you know. So then I go to Nepal, you know. So that was very, very different for me. And uh, suddenly before marriage, my mother suddenly realized between the period I got engaged and got married, there were eight months. And she suddenly realized this girl has no home skills. Like, you know, (laughs) cooks in the house, you know, my parents ran a hotel. So... It was all cooked. The waiters would serve your food. The, you know, she said she's has got no. And so my sister-in-law, my bhabi, was put to the task. You have to train her. You know, so every day I would have to make eggs to order for breakfast, and one dish for lunch, one dish for dinner. So my training started, and I put away my Byron and my Keats and picked up the ladle. <laughs> You know, coming from a foodie family, I had no problem with that. I was always very fond of eating. So cooking came like a second nature. And, you know, like uh, I came from a family where at lunch after the meal, we'd be sitting on the dining table and discussing what are we eating for dinner and who's going to make it. (laughs) Okay, great. So, and then you said that you went to Nepal and uh, and, uh, your husband's nanny kind of taught you the Nepalese uh, uh, cuisine, right? So Yes, yes. So my husband's nanny, her uh, name was Shinya Champadidi, and she was like part of the household. She came to, to the house, you know, uh, when my grandmother-in-law, we were a big, big joint family there with five sons and, you know, the grandparents, five sons, their wives, children, everyone living in one household. Uh, so I, I wasn't part of that, I, you know. They, se- they separated uh, years before. But she came at the age of 15 and was trained literally by my grandmother-in-law, who was a fantastic cook. Oh. She was really good. So she worked under her. And then she was given to my mother-in-law to look after my husband. 
because oh. uh, the person for him who was supposed to look after him left and so she was just part of her family and she never got married she just stayed loyal loyal to the core adored my husband like her own son and you know and sort of adopted me and put me under her her wings as well uh, so she was more mother in law to me i think than mother in law okay and, you know you, you haven't taught the girls how to cook you know and say things like that so so she literally introduced me into anything about uh, the rana cuisine totally because she was a great cook and uh, and I learned from her she I learned from her and then later when I started uh, the book you know she would teach me all the recipes and I would like she would she had this great you know because she was instinct instinctive cook mm. so she would just splash in the oil and put in the chilies and this and I would say wait 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 let me measure you know yeah so, uh, she was really i mean she, she was a great cook she was a great cook so she mm. taught me Okay. So you know I found that the mo- the of course the most obviously fantastic part of the book is the momos section. You know because everybody's obsessed with momos and I found the momo section great. You know it's so it's it includes a traditional and a fusion cuisine, right? So talk about that especially the ones the fusion ones. I mean like I remember okay. yesterday I was telling my son about the fish momos and he said I've never even heard of fish momos you know we should try that <laughs> so I said yes. yeah we should so you know, talk about the momo section okay so the momo section is the last chapter in the book and I think uh, that's going to be a favorite with everyone I I I feel that you know yeah, the traditional yeah. recipes are great and ethnic and exotic and everything and then the momos which I feel is just loved worldwide you know yes. when uh, the first time I learned how to make momos was when i went to drop my daughter uh, to the states hmm. when she was going for college yeah so there were quite a few nepalese students in this one a place that they were all renting out they had apartments there and they would get together in the evening and uh, everyone would get together and make momos wow. that's how i learned how to make momos i'd already Ooh. eaten them but Ooh. it was in america that i learned how to make momos from really? this young so missing home <laughs> I would cook the rest of the food for them but the momos I didn't know so I learned there and uh, I think the traditional momos I think you know just the feeling of the momo in the mouth the juice yeah. oozing out just takes you to a different level you know the gratification is something else you know yes. so I think that would be an interesting thing because everyone I mean it's everyone's all time favorite like there yes. was the story that one of the boys who I was working for who was assembling the book the yeah. fine arts team told me he said there's a story that you go to a restaurant every time and you look at the menu and you look at it up and down to go through and then you just order momos you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that's why I wanted to do the history as well as the traditional momos which you know and then the different types you know and adapting to today's world yeah so the traditional ones i think came from tibet or went from nepal to tibet you know so it's it's uh, there are two theories like i've written in in the book yes. they both yes. in nepal so uh, they were used basically with yak meat buffalo meat you know whatever and then they started slowly you know coming on to the pork because the darjeeling the south the northeast area of nepal everyone uses a lot of pork yes. so the pork momo because it has a lot of fat they're very juicy 
Mm. Right. And the, the, if you're re- using chicken or mutton, if you don't put in the fat, you have to add a little bit of oil so that it remains like this. Yes. Yes. And of course, then the variations came in with the fish and the prawn. But, you know, like we've adapted from the Goza, you know, the Korean, the Japanese, the Chinese, you know, where they use yes. prawn and where they with dumplings, basically. Right. Yes. Yes. So names for the same thing. Mm. And then now, I think in India, they've taken it to a different level with the tandoori momos and you know, <laughs> the Afghani momos and things like that, you know, Indianized yes. it totally. So I think every any country that uh, enjoys momos are just adapting it to their own taste. So I thought it would be interesting, you know, because I love doing fusion. Yes. I, I uh, really enjoy, you know, adding a little bit of uh, the masalas and things to my continental type of cooking or mm. a little Thai curry to something. So I thought fusion momos would be interesting. And I thought of all the dishes where you could incorporate it. So the cow suey turned out to be a big time favorite, you know, that yeah. really, instead of the noodles, yeah. you put in, you know, and yeah. uh, the traditional one, which is the Kwanti Momo. Kwanti is these nine uh, uh, beans, which okay. is a very traditional recipe of Nepal. It's called Kwanti. Mm-hmm. And it started off with the Nevar community, which is the in- indigenous community of Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. So they have this Kwanti Jhol, which is called, which is like a soup, which is a nine bean soup sprouted. Mm-hmm. And especially eating during the winter months, which is, you know, very good. And during the, you know, the winter and even the monsoons because it's supposed to be very good for your strength and stuff like that and bring bills okay. up your okay. so putting these little dumplings or momos into that enriched it even more because okay. you got your added protein more protein to it you know <laughs> the beans already have their proteins the sprout is so sprouted so they're nutritious and then you add in the momos so the kids used to love it that's what one of the ladies who i've uh, took an interview from asking her about mrs ambika she, she told me she said our favorite used to be the momo the kwati jewel with the momos in it because you know as children we would be digging out the momos first and then our parents would be forcing us to eat the rest of the soup or whatever or drink the rest <laughs> of the soup. so uh, so that's the story about the momos, you know, and now they pan fry it and yeah. they take it to a different, you know, with the egg. I thought it would be interesting as a breakfast dish. So I've, you know, used an egg base and just put the momos on top. And yeah. then of course it's pan fried and there's a bit chili momos and deep fried momos and the momo chart I thought would be interesting, you know, I just, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I would I would uh, deep fry them because, you know, to go with the Indian chart, uh, you know, sort of flavor, like yeah. the samosa, the are all deep fried. You can yes. use the steam, steamed if you're going on the health, health way, healthy way. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, I would deep fry it and put your aloo and chana and chutneys and, you know, all that. Yeah. Right, so. yeah. yeah. And uh, the momo I really found fascinating was that one where, you know, you, there are four openings for um you know for different chutneys it's called the sui mai yes yeah lovely that's a lovely one yes yes the sui mai is quite a all-time favorite there's there used to be one old restaurant called the uh, the sui mai restaurant where we used to all go when we were young for this open momo oh nice interesting (laughs) yes okay Okay, so tell me about, uh, you know, you mentioned all the different communities, you know, so tell me how you went about collecting and clearly this is over many years, no? So tell me how you went about collecting recipes from them. Okay, uh, so this collecting, this thought for this book actually happened and germinated by in the time when I'd finished the my first book, which is the Rana 
you know, the Rana cookbook, uh, recipes from the palaces of Nepal. It was finished. It had been sent to Penguin and it was just languishing, uh, languishing with them because of the pandemic. And mm. I kept, you know, I used to be arguing with this uh, person I was in contact saying, everyone's cooking during the pandemic. So if yes. you take out the book, they'll cook, you know. And then uh, Tarani would tell me, no, no, you can't imagine our sales are down 2%. We don't want to lose such a beautiful book. But yeah. in publishing is different. Everyone's cooking uh, tubes, you know, YouTube, this, that. But that doesn't mean the book will do well, you know. So, yeah. so I was convinced. And uh, it went into germination for about 10 months. We were waiting, you know, for the world to get normal. And while waiting, it was such a, you know, like you've got your book, is ready. And, you know, it's on the fingertips and it hasn't come out, you know. So yeah. while waiting for that and while I did just the Rana recipes, I suddenly realized that there's so much more to Nepalese cooking. You know, when because yes. of my husband, I traveled all over the place with him and tasted the different food and met the different ethnic people from the different ethnic communities. Yeah. I mean, literally, like I say in my book, I've touched the tip of the iceberg where I've uh, taken chosen just the ten, uh, 10 of the main ethnic communities mm -hmm. and talked about their recipes and their customs and you know so i mean they like in nepal the founder of the nation was king prithvi naran shah he's the one that put the country together otherwise they yes. were different principalities and he used to say you know, so like four mm -hmm. castes and 36 ethnic communities. I think there we found out now that there are many more smaller ones, okay. Okay. but there were the 36, you know, different mm -hmm. ethnic communities. And out, I had a tough time out of them to choose just 10. But mm -hmm. they are the biggest, let's say, the main biggest ethnic communities that, uh, you know, are there, you know, and uh, their food is, especially the Thakali food, now the Madesi food, all that is coming into the fore now. People are opening restaurants and cooking it, you know. Yes. And they're really well liked, you know. So uh, with all that coming now, you know, but before we, when you said Nepali food, it used to be dal bhat, tarkari masu, you know, mm. little bit, you know, your lentils, your rice. Your fresh vegetables, it had to be seasonal, fresh vegetables. You had to have a, a fresh pickle with it, you know, something mm -hmm. they'd make. A, it, it's called acharde, like a chutney, you know. Yes. Whether it's radish or tomatoes or, you know, the green, the cilantro or whatever. You had to have something fresh. Mm -hmm. And then you had to have a old pickle as well. And then, of course, if you're non-vegetarian, your meat would go with it, you know. So depending on where you come from, uh, that would de determine the type of meat you you would be eating generally. You know, okay, so. okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also the use of fish. Um, you know, one doesn't. I mean, one thinks only of coastal regions is having a rich fish thing. But uh, uh, there are quite a few recipes here as well. So I, I was wondering about prawns and all. Is 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 it local? You know. Uh, no, prawns are definitely not, not local, and they are brought in from outside. We have some, uh, you know, in the in the in the southern area, in the Tarai area, and and we have uh, river fish throughout, right? Yes, yes. So we have carp and you know all that. We have a yeah. lot of sole. We have things called uh, the local fish called buari, and you know other other things. Uh, but uh, fish is not that, uh, you, you know, that used in the northern area. Either it's very small ones and it's dried fish, you know. Yes, yes. They don't but in the Tarai area, in the southern area of Nepal, uh, fish is used more. And they are in the ponds, they do fishery and they are the river fish. So oh. it's used more. 
and uh, okay. you know for convenience of uh, of uh, let's say of uh, diverse you know like making a division of nepal i've laterally sliced it into three according mm. to the according to the topography the geographic yes. you know geography of the country uh because the climatic conditions and the geography they make the food similar okay right? okay what i've done is i've laterally sliced nepal in three okay you know, the first is the northern area which is the high mountain regions mm. and uh, they inhabited uh, they are, you know that area is inhabited by the thakalis and the sherpas basically mm. the sherpas mm. and the thakalis two regions mm. then comes the mid region which is the biggest Yes. Uh, starting from west to east that's the that's the hilly region going into the verdant valleys and you know river areas and also that from the west would be the thakuris the brahmans the chhetris the khas gurungs magars you know mm-hmm. and uh, tamangs then we come to the central part of nepal which is kathmandu mandala we call it you know and mm-hmm. inhabited by the nevaris uh, the nevar community who are the indigenous people of kathmandu Okay. dating back to the times even and then you move east uh, east and you come to the kirati tribes known as rais and limbus mm-hmm. so that you know that big chunk of the middle part of nepal is you know inhabited by all these communities and then you go south to the tarai to mm-hmm. the you know jungle jungles and uh, fields of the tarai and from the west it's the tharus but they are all in intermingled i'm just you know where they are mainly they come from originate or what i've named these areas for the communities but they've intermingled and they're all over the place now so okay. the tharus the manisi the mithila area the bhojpuris you know so they occupy the the southern area mm. and according to the climatic conditions and the geography the food is influenced by all that you know okay um, not on, not only just the topography but uh, we are uh, we are in the middle of these two gigantic neighbors china and india china to the north and india to the south and so uh, the northern areas are influenced the tribes that came in centuries back and the yes. southern areas influenced by india and the intermingling and i think uh, we have beautifully absorbed both these cultures and have created something which is totally unique which is nepal Yes. Yeah, so. Yes. Yeah. And I found that you know when you've like uh, before each um, section with each community, you know, and right at the beginning you've explained all the symbols and you know I found that a really lovely section where you you know the the golden fish and see do you want to talk about that those uh, the sim the symbolism of that. The Ashtamangal. Yes. Ashtamangal. Another thing like the hundred and eight number. Uh, Ashtamangal is again another very aus- aus- uh, eight auspicious signs, which are uh, common to uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Right. Mm, so yeah. these signs were usually decorated on temple, uh, you know, doors at the entrance, or on yes. flags, or you know, on palaces. On Ashtamangals are again aus- auspicious sign. They have mm. no connection in any way to any ethnic community, like I've explained in the book. They are mm. again my lucky charms to take my book to a happy time and to success. That is it. But okay. I just found it so beautiful those signs and the way my fine arts team has just designed it so beautifully. You know, yes. Uh, just to we've given each ethnic community one of the ethnic signs and it taken it through the pages as as yes. well. So. 
uh, you know, you've spoken about how the accessories that you've used in the pictures are also to do with each each group, you know, and, and each of them have distinct uh, weaves and distinct jewelry. So that was also quite uh, uh, fascinating. So talk about that, you know. Okay. So first, I was just concentrating just on the recipes, re- reaching out to people of each community who were famous for their good food. Or, you know, I would be asking around, okay, tell me in this community with the gurungs, whose food is the best, you know, this and that. You know, so then I would reach out to them and ask them for recipes. You know, some of the good ones didn't want to share or didn't really have time or the whatever to do. But then somehow I managed to get that. And then when it came to, so I learned the recipes, of course, you know, I would document them, learn them, learn it from them. You know, because again, everyone cooks uh, with what we call andaz, no? I mean, if yes. you are fond of cooking, you're not measuring all, all the time until you're trying out a new a new recipe. Yes. So, um, literally, I would stop them, you know, midway and say, wait, 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 let me measure. And I have my <laughs> teaspoon and my tablespoon and my cup and everything ready in hand. And so while I was doing that, you know, then I learned, I would practice each recipe a couple of times. Mm. And then finally, when we came to the photography, that's the time I started thinking, you know, there's so much more to the ethnic culture than just the food. Mm. It's their beautiful fabric, their costumes, their jewelry. It's so exotic. It's just out of the world. It's fabulous, you know. Yes. So then when I thought of uh, styling each each picture for the, for the each food imagery, uh, I, I went out and, you know, would uh, get the fabric or, you know, if it's... Uh, from the southern area, the Madesis, I have, my neighbors are very good friends and they are from Madhesi and I would say, I'm sure you have ethnic saris or give me something, some fabric, you know. So mm-hmm. I would be reaching out to people. Then I did a study on what they originally ate in. Okay. Right? Because yeah. the first book was quite easy. It was home food. Your relatives would give me, you know, when I ran out of my own dishes, I would ask someone else, you know, do you have a different shape? I have the only round platters. And someone would say, yes, I have oval, I have triangular, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. that was easy. This one, I did a study and a research on what was originally the utensil that they ate in. Yes. Right? What plate yes. they used, what, uh, what metal was used. And I came to the conclusion a lot of it is kasa. You know, kas mm. is used yes, yes. with all the ethnic communities, like I think it was in India also as well. Yes, kas, the alloy, right? It's yes, an alloy. alloy. Yeah. It has a lot of healthy properties as well, I think, you know, so if you really go into it scientifically, I'm sure, you know, we could do a real study on that and see that the nutritional value is really increased eating in these sort of dishes. But some mm. uh, of the ethnic communities ate in clay, you know, big clay, you know, platters, and some would, you know, fashioned in the leaves, you know, yes. whatever was you know, available to them in, in, in the jungles. So mm-hmm. all that was so interesting. And then I was reaching out to all these friends and family and asking them, you know, to, uh, you know, lend me the jewelry as well. You know, so the mm-hmm. fabric, like if you see with the, with the Sherpas and the Thakalis, the, the jewelry is just so exotic. It's so yes, it's lovely. To yeah. what one sees it. You know, it's just, you know, the Z and the corals and the turquoise. And then, of course, with the rest of the Q communities, it's basically gold, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of gold, gold, gold jewelry. And the way it's crafted, you know, it's crafted, it's handcrafted. There was no machinery at that time. Yes. And uh, you notice in one of the pictures towards the, uh, where I'm talking about the Kirati tribes of the Rais and the Limbus, they have silver jewelry. Yes, I was just going to ask about that. Lovely silver 
Yes, they have silver, beautiful silver jewelry, all handcrafted also. And one of the bangles had these really sharp edges, you know. Mm. So I asked the lady, I said, when you wear this traditionally, doesn't it hurt you? You know, mm. like, you know, if it comes in contact with yourself, you know, the really sharp edges. And she said, you know, we don't mind that. But it, this is our protection against other people as well. You know, it was such an interesting story. She said, when we were traveling or someone tried to, you know, you know, try to attack us or something. We have this weapon ready in our hands. We can give it off. So that was such an interesting story that it was just not jewelry to make to beautify them, but also a little bit of an, uh, you know, like a weapon yes. which they use for their self-defense. So I thought yes. that was so, so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really interesting use of jewelry. <laughs> Great about the book is there's a bit which I loved where you said, you know, uh, about eating with your fingers, you know, and and the the how special that is. So let's talk yes, about yes. that, you know, because now increasingly okay. uh, we don't eat with our fingers. At least, you know, I mean, a lot yes. of younger people refuse to eat with their fingers. So let's talk about right. the 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 benefits of it, and you know why it's okay. such a important thing yeah. I think you know when I did the study in my first book I've written it more at length I think is you create this mudra you know and mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's supposed to be healthy as well because you will definitely wash your hands before eating and yes. you know and the take up your food the, the you know uh, I know of someone very close to me who because uh, had put on weight and wanted to go on a diet and stopped eating with their hands so oh. I said why why have you done that and uh, he said, because when I eat with my hands, I land up eating more because it's so tasty. The very fact that you're putting, you know, you know, you're eating more, you're licking your fingers, you know, that whole. I think it's a it's a mental thing. It's the food is giving you so much more satisfaction. So you eat more, you know, yeah. so, and then it's supposed to be very, very scientific as well, because, you know, you are uh, what is it called? The typical Nepali word would be chewing. you know, you're grinding the food with you with your hands. So yes. it's easier to, you know, there's not large quantities of it, you know, things like that also. And it is scientific. It is better for digestion. It's better for your mental state because the, the gratification you get, I think, you know. Yes. From feel, the feel of the food, the smell yes. of the food. All these things have a great, you know, like a sense of gratification. So your mind, because they say food in every way should be, you know, appealing to all your senses, mm. all your five senses. Yes. Your eyes, it presented well, it should look good. Then the smell of it, so your nose, your olfactory, all, all you know, senses are. And then, of course, and then the taste buds, you know, and then your digestion, and then the brain, your soul, everything is pacified if you're having a good meal. So they yeah. say the, you know, it's supposed to be scientifically proven, sitting on the floor, in the cross leg position, you know, eating with your hands, you know, is all supposed to be very good for you. Very good mm -hmm. for the nutrition. It's good for you, for your mental balance. Maybe I mean sitting cross-legged might be going a bit too far, but definitely. <laughs> yes. I I totally agree with you. In 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 today's world, it's very very difficult. But see, when you go to the temples and you're given a bhog or something, after that you're always supposed to be sitting on the floor, cross-legged, eating on a, a leaf, you know, on a yes. banana leaf, or a tar leaf, or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what is it? I mean, you're not wasting anything. You're not adding to the clutter in the world. You know, That's it's true. all disposable. It's healthy for you. Your digestion works well because you're sitting, you know, your your back is straight when you're sitting down, your crossed legs. So the digestion is eased, you know. 
So it yeah. all, I think I have a way of living and eating and doing whatever I had great scientific, uh, you know, theories and they were really good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, which is your, you know, your personal favorite from all the, you know, the recipes that you've collected? Oh, Lord, that's a difficult <laughs> one, you know, because I am a foodie. I'm a total foodie and I love good food. So, you know, Nepal has so much of good food to offer you, you yeah. know, uh, each community, each community, literally, you know, so that is really difficult because uh, the vegetables, I must say, I must talk about the Nepali way of cooking vegetables. It's mostly mm -hmm. stir fried. We don't overcook. If you notice, like you said, all the recipes are very simple. Yes. You know, the yes. cuisine is very simple, hardly any masalas. We don't drown our vegetables and meat with the spices. You know, there's just a little tinge of it. So you get the taste of the vegetables and the meat and the spices, of course. So, yes. uh, uh, very difficult to say that, but uh, I love, like you said, my aloos. You know, <laughs> I love the the aloos, the chukalu, and uh, you know some of the uh, the uh, the meat recipes, the mutton recipes cooked with vegetables. One is cooked with cauliflower, one is cooked with radish. You know, and mm. then the greens, the mustard yes. greens, spinach. They're just stir fried, cooked in mustard oil. Something else, you know. It's a it's different different level the taste and i think uh, being in nepal we are higher altitude so the vegetables taste better ah, that in, in nenital it was the yeah. same thing it the pahar yeah. is altitude whatever it is the vegetables taste better than when it is in the plains, in the plains. You know, so. that's true that's true it's more succulent no somehow Absolutely, so much more tasty, and of course, the momos is my favorite chapter. So. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, and the one with the choila I've tried out, you know, which is a typical Nevari dish, choila, ah. and that like you make a really uh, um, a spicy tomato pickle. You okay. char you charcoal broil the tomatoes and the uh, the garlic and the chilies, and then you crush it, and then you add it to meat and you temper it with mustard oil. That's okay. the typical, uh, the Nevari dish that is cooked, you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, they use buff or they use, uh, you know, duck or whatever. I've used momos for that. Mm. So this momo choila comes out really well. Every time I've served it in parties as a snack, it's really appreciated, you know. Okay. So, and what about this whole fermented food section? I found this fascinating. Like I've mentioned in, in the chapters in the northern area, you know, uh, they have very few uh, months where they grow anything because it's so cold, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's grain or the vegetables or whatever. So, very few months because it's so cold. So, what they do is they dry, they smoke, they ferment. Whether it's meat all the vegetables, it's radish, tomatoes, you know, even uh, spinach, mm. uh, mustard greens, you know, they're all dried out and then they're put into bottles and they're fermented. And then uh -huh. they're used throughout the winter months where they don't get anything fresh, you know. Mm. And uh, there's a very interesting story when we come lower, uh, uh, you know, down to the, the, the mid-regions when uh, Prithvi Narayan Shah was trying to uh, come in and, uh, you know, take over Kathmandu, which was ruled by the three Malla kings at that time. It was three different little principalities. Kathmandu, Bhaktapur and Patan were three different, you know, kingdoms ruled by different Malla kings. And King Prithvi Nanusha was trying to take over. So okay. he blockaded the whole area for a very long mm. time, right? Mm. For months. So they, uh, they grew out of fresh vegetables and that's the time they started to ferment 
the the the, the mustard greens which is called kulu, which is mm-hmm. all time favorite everywhere so the fish is fermented you know dried or smoked the, even in the northern areas and in all the other areas as well they use something called sukuti ah. sukuti is like you know like drying right you yes. smoke or dry the meat yeah so you cut it in long strips and you hold it over a a, a wooden fire or even in the northern area where they don't have the fire you you you, you just dry it in that cold and with the wind it just dries out or mm-hmm. they used to hang it over their wooden fires you know wherever they are cooking in the kitchen yes they yes hang over and just naturally getting smoked and dried and that was used for the later months where they couldn't get the fresh meat Ah. and fermented food is supposed to be very good for now we've discovered it's discovered yeah. it's very good the gut health and for digestion you know yeah so, uh, it's a big part of nepali cooking really a big big part of nepali cooking you know uh, a lot of people are eating gundruk and masura and things like that you know which is like in hindi we call it vadi but uh, here in nepal it was more the norm because uh, it was necessary you know like yeah. i said you know 6 months of of the year or even more uh, fresh food wasn't available so they would do everything so that they could get uh, food uh, in the winter months when it was easily available so they would be you know o- over their cooking fires in their kitchens they would uh, string uh, these pieces long pieces of meat o- over the fire so that would be naturally smoking it and drying out taking out all the moisture and then they would uh, you know keep it uh, hang it up it was always hung somehow i don't know why it was always hung in this mesh you know sort of you know like uh, you know whatever net sort of baskets or whatever and uh, whenever you needed however much you needed you took out and sometimes it was pounded you would roast the meat a little and pound it or could or break it into smaller pieces and that would be cooked as a soup with vegetables on its own uh eaten with you know your buckwheat porridge or with your rice or with whatever you know going with it and they would sometimes add vegetables to it mm. or not so that was a great part of uh, the fermenting and this is the the, the drying out pro- process and the meat would be called sukuti okay right and uh, and the and the dried and fermented uh, mustard greens and spinach would be called gundruk mm. so uh, there's a funny story uh Where, where the Nepalese having can't do without their gundruk, so they travel with it all over the world. And in London, I think they are, you know, held up and said, uh, like, what is this? So they said, it's food. You know, you eat it. It's dried grass. The minute they said grass, you know, the <laughs> immigration officer's eyes open, and they send it for a test. And it comes back not fit for human consumption. But. <laughs> that this is not fit but you know the nephews would be very very uh, you know unhappy about that because they live on their gundruk and their sukuti and enjoy it thoroughly so that's a funny story anyway okay okay so you know when i was looking at the book and i, I was thinking you know it also made me think about uh, how different also the nepalese are from indian hindu communities in a sense because uh, like for many indian hindu communities like in india meat you know we wouldn't use it all the time it's like you know in religious occasions it's completely you know it's just not done i mean yeah it's taboo whereas you you know i found this fascinating this little bit where you uh, you know mentioned this whole passage uh, samay baji you know i said wow yeah 
फूड ब्लेस बाय द गॉड्स द फाइव एलिमेंट्स आर सिंबलाइज इन द समय बाजी व्हिच इज ऑफर्ड टू द गॉड्स बिफोर बीइंग कंज्यूम्ड बाय द पीपल एज प्रसाद इट्स अ कॉम्बिनेशन एंड आई इंक्लूड्स ऑल सॉर्ट्स ऑफ थिंग्स बीटन राइस बफलो मीट बॉइल्ड एग यू नो लेंटिल पैनकेक्स ऑल दैट ओके सी सो व्हाट हैपेंस हियर इन नेपाल वी आर अ कंट्री ऑफ मिक्स्ड कम्युनिटीज मिक्स्ड एथनिक कम्युनिटीज लाइक आई सेड फ्रॉम द नॉर्थ यू आर यू नो इन्फ्लुएंस्ड बाय द Tibetan influence by the uh, from the south by the Indian influence and in the middle in the in the middle you know, was uh, was the Nevari community living in Kathmandu the indigenous people and they were formerly Buddhist and then with the coming of the you know with with the Mallas and and the Lichwis they imbibed the Hindu uh, culture as well as the Buddhist culture and they you know it's a beautifully syncretic society where we imbibed everything and then we created something unique which is our own yes and in that the samay bhaji is typically a nevari mm-hmm. uh, auspicious uh, offering which happens before any religious uh, you know occasion mm-hmm. so this this like it said i like like i've written in the book it involves the five elements you know yes and uh, each food in in that samay bhaji is uh denoting one of the elements like the fire the earth the wind and uh, so you know even in the hindu practices mm. uh like i'm saying our religion has a little bit of a tantric flavor shaivism shamanism it's yes. all syncretic it's all syncretic and it's all coming one and there's no uh, clear defining element so let's see the brahmans the chhatris the thakuris they will be pure pure hindus they will you know in their religious offerings they will have no garlic and no onion and no meat right okay. so okay. for their religious puja they would be having none of it but the same people when they go to a temple they will sacrifice a goat they will sacrifice a cockerel oh. right? and oh. they will offer it to the god sacrificing oh. in front of the deity and then they will go home and cook the the goat or the cockerel and eat it as prasad oh during the shara oh during adishara which in nepal is called uh, dasai which is one of the Dasai. biggest festivals So yes. Most of the Hindu community cut uh, goats, you know, on the eighth day Ashtami. You know that is the eighth ah. day, and they, they will cut the goat. And every day you are eating meat. Like oh. in India, you know, when we came, my mother-in-law Indian as well. We would be fasting, and my father-in-law would be so irritated with us, so angry. So this is not Nepali. We eat meat every day during Dasai. If we don't eat it through the year, it's fine. But during Dasai, which is the nine days of the Navratri, there is fasting. I mean, there is no fasting; there is feasting. You know, oh. like in India, you know, everyone yes. here believes in the Navratris, and it's all without Anna also and all that. Yeah. In Nepal, it is feasting and feasting and feasting. New clothes, eating meat, enjoying yourself, drinking alcohol. That is what Navratri wow. is about. That is Lovely. Amazing, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and we are a total Hindu Hindu community, you know. Yes, so it's so yeah. so different. We've absorbed yeah. all the different, like I said, all the different religions and created our own. Yeah. And uh, with the Nevaris again, there you know a little bit of Buddhism, little and the Tantrism also comes in a little okay. bit of that, you know. Okay. Like you go to some of the temples in in Nepal, all the deities they are chained, you know, they are chained. They are, they've done these pujas where. The deity is the god is present there according to our way of thinking. The psychic yeah. you know, god is there because we yes. came and kept him there. You know, the, the, and there we will, uh, you know, offer uh, goats. We will offer cockles. You know, uh, machi mm. also charad. Under, you know, like eggs are also part of the offering. You know, okay. you'll have uh, the the black soya bean. You'll have beaten rice. You have uh, egg in it. 
you have ginger, you know, and then you make a paste out of vermilion and mustard oil and you mix these, uh, the, uh, the soya, black soya bean and everything and you offer it to the gods. Right. And whatever is offered to the god is then, of course, invited. You know, then yes. It has big pageantry in all these festivals where people drink a lot of alcohol, is consumed, and everything centers around food. It's great. Everyone, you know, there's a lot of feasting and cooking, and then offering to the gods, and then. When the God blesses, we eat and we drink. So, you know, and even you've mentioned so many drinks as well. So, you, you know, talk about that, there's so many, like, you've not focused on it. Maybe there's another book in that, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> but I found, like, I've had Chang and all, you know, in Sikkim and stuff. Is it like similar? There's so many, uh, you've mentioned so many in the course of the book. You know, I noticed. No, you haven't focused on them. I have. Yeah. I've listed all of them. And yeah. it's very interesting that you said that because the other day my husband thinks I should do a trilogy, you know, you do a third book, and I was saying, yeah. now what? I've got, you know, nothing left. Yeah. And uh, we were just discussing and we said we haven't touched on the drinks, you know, at all. So, yes, each, each community, each ethnic community brews and makes their own alcohol. Okay. So, whatever grain is grown in that area, be it barley, be it wheat, be it millet, rice, you know, whatever. That is fermented and brewed, and then copious amounts are intake, you know, like they imbibe copious amounts. They love feasting, you know. Like I've said uh, with the Nevaris, when I started out on the Nevar community, uh, I've put in a thing in, uh, in, in, there's a saying, famous saying in Nepali, Parvate Bigriyo Mojle, Nevari Bigriyo Mojle, you know. Mm. That the hill people got spoiled by uh, having fun, you know, just being a very fun, fun-loving community. While the Nevaris got spoiled because of the feasting, the food, which <laughs> involves eating as well as drinking, you know. So uh, uh, drinking is uh, very, very prevalent all over the country, especially in the colder areas because I guess it's, it's alcohol keeps you warm as well. And, yes. you know, you know, it starts from childhood. Everyone's given a little sip here, there, keeping you warm, all the rapsi, the jar, the ayla, you know, all that is going past. In fact, with the Nevari community, uh, the bride, the new bride that comes into the house, she has to serve the alcohol. And mm-hmm. it's in this little, uh, uh, you know, in this little mud, uh, you know, in this clay, clay little, uh, you know, dish. And she has to pour it in one long stream with this, you know, with the... With, with the vessel and it's not supposed to, to spill. So oh. all the attributes are judged that day by the way she pours the alcohol and all these <laughs> yeah. stories that go with, you know, uh, with the alcohol. So, uh, yes, so a lot of alcohol is consumed and might be the next book might feature some of it. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, in, in, in the villages, nearly every second house does their own brewing and drinks their own alcohol, you know, so. But uh, this local drinks like Ayla and Chang and everything is brewed all over the place and uh, used in feasting. And- this is fantastic, though. I don't know where I'll ever uh, find, I don't know, uh, this Pap Chung, Pap Chung, butter tea. Superb. You know, is it the same sort of thing that you have in Ladakh or it must be different? I'm sure it is. It's, it must be very, very similar. Very, very yeah. similar. Yeah, and they have this special wooden, uh, you know, container to make it. And yeah, even as just just a decorative item, you know. Yes, this was one of uh, the the tea shops where we went to eat when I was on my trip.
Chip, uh, my grandson, had taken him for his 17th birthday and given him this holiday with his two American friends. Mm. We went to this Everest View Hotel and had a champagne breakfast in front of Everest. Wow. And I took my photographer along because I knew in my mind I wanted momos in front of Everest, you know, a plateau of momos. <laughs> so on this family trip was there was Mansi with us, you know. I mean, she's a great friend and family as well. So while we were, the kids were, you know, having their breakfast, we were shooting momos, you know, in front of Everest, you know. And uh, then we came to a tea house, which had this as a decorative item there. I'm sure if they we asked, they would be serving us that also. But we weren't really in the mood for butter tea at that time. But uh, we photographed this there in, in uh, Lukla, you know, which is one of the airports before you go to every space camp. Oh, okay. So this Chinese tea, I mean, what what's Chinese tea? Like, you get specific tea for this? Tea leaves or is general? You get a special tea. It's not the normal, normal tea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tea made comes from, uh, you know, special tea leaves which are not grown, you know, like in Darjeeling or whatever they do. Yeah, so this is something, because I like tea a lot, I was thinking, wow, this is something I want to try as well. <laughs> Pap chung. And, okay, let's talk about all the varieties of flatbreads, you know, this f- first kur, and then a lot of rice breads as well, which are really nice. Yes. Very yeah. True, very true. Uh, you know, there are, you know, uh, of course, uh, wheat, wheat is also eaten quite uh, commonly, but more in the southern region, in the Tarai. Everywhere else, it's rice. Whether it's in Western Nepal, you see I've done quite a platter of that, you know, yes. mara and all those, which which is rice bread. Then even in the Tarai, there's a chawal ki roti. You know? uh-huh. And then, of course, in the northern area, you know, the Sherpas eat the skur. And, you know, the Thakalis have their buckwheat. Uh, so it's like a buckwheat porridge, and then you fashion it into these little fingers and deep fry it, and it goes with the tomato pickle or the timur chop or something, you know. So it's really yeah. good. And then the kur is also again very easily made, you know, just on a flat, uh, like a frying pan, and you make the bread. Yes. Yes. It's not a baking process or something. You just made it in a pan. Yeah. Yeah. And also, even the potato. There's some potato cake. Potato. Ah. That is a potato pancake. Yes. Yeah. Even this, I I never thought of stuffing parvel with chicken. You know, painted gourd stuffed with minced chicken. This is very uh, nice. It's a traditional yeah, recipe. Uh, you know, I've, I've given a vegetarian option. I said you can use aloo or paneer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what you, know, you know, I learned from my first book. I made a mistake because there are actually more vegetarian recipes in the Rana cookbook than they're non-vegetarian. But what I did is I started off with all of the non-veg. Mm. You know, I started with the wild boar, then the mutton, and the chicken, and, the, and, the, and by the time I came to the and a lot of vegetarians thought this book is only non-vegetarian because you know they look at the first few pages. So this time I've broken it up and it's like you know vegetarian options for everything. And you know, uh, vegan I haven't come down to, but vegetarian definitely. I don't measure a thing when I cook. I just sprinkle and add stuff. This must be the uh, quote from from your husband's uh, uh, nanny, is it? <laughs> Until I hear the spirit of my ancestors, it is, it is, it is a quote by an unknown person, but I just loved it, you know, because it just went so well. 
with the old recipes because even in this book and in the old book, uh, some are like nearly uh, dying out recipes. I feel if it wasn't documented, they would slowly die out, especially in the first book, the Anna cookbook. Uh, you know, they, are, they were very time consuming, you know, time, in, uh, you know, labor intensive, time consuming, yes. needed people to do it. And even in this one, the Rikiku, the you know, and yeah. stuff like that, where you have to pound the potato till it becomes elastic, you know. So, yes. all that, you know, okay. And the same flavor, the same texture does not come in a mixy or grinder. You know, that hand <laughs> pounding is something else you know it takes it to a different level and the texture of whether it's the meat or the potatoes is different you know to what you one does nowadays in a grinder or, or mm -hmm. a no but i wondered how do you make potato elastic you know i i thought about that you've written it there and i really wondered like how much then you really have to do a lot to it no you have to do it and it literally it comes out like a sponge you know it comes out wow. like it's so interesting it comes out but it's very very interesting very interesting that's a skin that is spongy and it's soft you know when it's cooked in the soup the little mm -hmm. balls will float up and it's spongy and soft absolutely mm -hmm. and this is another is it is this like uh doi match almost dahi haleko matcha fish cooked in yogurt sauce yes yes it's really e easily done because it's put all together all the spices and and the yogurt and then it's just cooked you know with the uh, with oil and you know until the oil comes out so it's really easily done it's an easy easy recipe yeah so and another thing and the the, the kind of vessels you've chosen are also very pretty uh, some of these wooden ones i think on page page 33 you know so I was wondering if people actually eat in those. Yes, yes, absolutely. This lady who gave me these recipes, you know, for the Thakali food, huh. she had beautiful fabric and, you know, in fact, uh, I took off a, a, her, her prayer beads from one of the pictures and I said, can I please use this and I put it aside somewhere, you know, and things like that. And mm -hmm. she had really these interesting, you know, these wooden bowls and, you know, with the covering and everything for the tea. Yeah, so they actually use them, huh? Wow, wow, in and this the villages they use them all the time. You know, oh, you know, okay, so, yeah, 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 they use them. Okay, okay, so now I mean, now uh, you know, with restaurants like Yeti and all, so we have even in Delhi, you know, we have access to some uh, Nepali cuisine, and that's when I first had this Thakali Thali, which is superb, quite brilliant, very tasty. Very tasty. Very tasty. Go up to Thakola or whichever area, or Mustang or wherever you have it there. You know because there they will be using the the local chicken, mm -hmm. the red potatoes. You know for the Mustang alu or the red potatoes and the buckwheat which is grown right there with without any fertilizers and everything. The taste, the comparatively so different you can't imagine. You know it's so much more tasty. Mm -hmm. You know and even the fresh uh, the Shichwa pepper, the Timur, it's so yes. much more pungent. And you know the the, the these are electrified up there if you're eating the local produce, you know, so mm. it's really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I the thing about this book, some of, the, some of the ingredients are, I guess one would have to go to specialty markets and get them or something like, or to INA, you know, like the pepper, like the timur or uh, some of the other. used a lot in uh, uh, Chinese cooking, right? It is, yes. it is 
Sichuan pepper. Yes. It's a lot in Chinese cooking. And uh, uh, a friend, an American friend of my of ours, who was the ambassador in Nepal, uh, he got my first book, the Rana cookbook. And he said, I've got everything you won't believe. Uh, I got the Timur on Amazon as well. And then he wow. said, the only thing missing is the is the alien, you know, the Jimbo. There's another herb, which is typically Nepali, is Timur and Jimbo, right? Okay. And Jimbo is like mountain alien. It's like dried chai. Yes, 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 basically. yes. Yeah, yeah, it looks like dried chives and mm-hmm. tastes similar. And then he wrote back after another month saying, you won't believe it. My Jimbu came on, on Amazon. You know, <laughs> so you never know, you know, what is available where these days. So <laughs> now he said, now I can do my raga food really well because I've got my Jimbu and my Jimbu. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. I think you've, have you like uh, intentionally kind of simplified some or you've, Kept it at the com- I tell you, this ethnic cuisine of Nepal is simple. It is not complicated. Like if you compare it to my first book, to the Rana cookbook, there's so many more ingredients. The yeah. method is also a little more complicated and a little more, you know, not only complicated, it's just more, uh, I think, laborious. But with this, with the ethnic cuisine, we use minimum masalas. You know, the taste of the meat or the vegetables is really poignant. You know, it comes out fresh. And uh, it's, it's it's not difficult. It really isn't, you know, because there's not so much of bunoing involved and this, that. And there's a lot of tempering, a lot of stir-fried with the vegetables, stir-fried with the meats, and the mustard oil and the fenugreek seeds and stuff is just tempered, you know, it's just tempered over the meat and the vegetables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is simple. Great. Okay. I've chosen the uh, more, you know, some recipes really exotic with the uh, rice and, you know, limbos. I mean, it was, you know, burnt chicken feathers with the, uh, it's it's called, what is this? This is a dish called vichipa, which is chicken cooked with the burnt chicken feathers. And that I thought would be a little too exotic with the taste buds. So I had to omit it, though it's very, very famous to that region, you know. So, you know, and pork, uh, pork blood with, with the meat and stuff like that. So. Uh, you know, so one thought, okay, I think this is very interesting. The, and even the fermentation process, you know, because it starts to smell very strongly. Mm. Uh, fermented bamboo shoots, you know, what you cook. Tama. Yeah, yeah. The whole house is smelling of tama. Your hands, if you eat with your hands, your, your hands are smelling of tama for quite some time. Even mm. you has, uh, you know, smell. So you have to uh, uh, get used to these, you know, uh, you know, different tastes. And it is... Uh, you know, like you have to acquire them. Mm. More, you know, some of the more exotic. Yeah. But like I know. The, uh, there's this thing called the kinima, which is a fermented soya bean with the yeah. rice and nimbus. Uh, I cooked it fresh off, you know, I didn't for the, for the recipe. But if you ferment it for three, four days, it becomes a little gooey and stringy and a very strong smell. Very, very strong smell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but this uh, uh, fried uh, feathers. Fried feathers? No, it's burnt chicken. It's burnt feathers. Burnt. Chicken feathers. They're, they're burnt, the chicken with the under, you know, the the, the, the softer ones, some say no. they're burnt. And then they grind it, like they're black, and then they cook it with the with the chicken. Oh. Interesting. I, I did research on that recipe. Thank you so much for talking to me. And for the for the listeners, you know, go out and get the Nepal cookbook, 108 Regional Recipes by Rohini Rana. It is lovely it's a lovely book and it's got recipes which are you know one can make and kind of my mouth was also watering while i was reading the book many parts of the book (laughs) i enjoyed it thoroughly so thank you so much rohini for talking to me thank you
Thank you. Thank you, Mandela, for having me and very interesting talking to you. I'm glad I could share some of the some the, the knowledge from my point of view. Okay. Bye. Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Hold up. 